Hello and welcome to The Mayorzine, a weekly audio magazine of vintage and not-so-vintage fiction curated and more often than not narrated by me, your host, Chris Mayer. War is ubiquitous, a go-to source of tension in fiction. It is a classic existential terror. While the causes for war can be specific to race or nationality or ideology, the act of war, the very idea of war, is present in every human culture since the beginning of time. It may not have always been labeled war, but it is always the same in essence. In Cold War America, the Soviet Union was the easy go-to villain, usually just generalized as the Russians. And as we are witnessing at the moment, Russian antagonism is not a relic of a bygone era. I didn't choose this week's stories to be timely. It's just that, as I said, Cold War fiction likes to use the easy popular monster. The Answer, by H. Beam Piper, is a startling look at a post-World War III world through the lens of two ex-enemies working together to achieve an incredible scientific breakthrough, which yields a surprising and chilling discovery. And quite possibly a terrible Russian accent. I'll let you decide that one. Answer. By H. Beam Piper. For a moment, after the screen door snapped and wakened him, Lee Richardson sat breathless and emotionless, his eyes still closed trying desperately to cling to the dream and print it upon his conscious memory before it faded. Are you there, Lee? He heard Alexis Pitov's voice. Yes, I'm here. What time is it? He asked, and then added, I fell asleep. I was dreaming. It was all right. He was going to be able to remember. He could still see the slim woman with the graying blonde hair playing with the little dachshund among the new fallen leaves on the lawn. He was glad they'd both been in this dream together. These dream glimpses were all he'd had for the last fifteen years, and they were too precious to lose. He opened his eyes. The Russian was sitting just outside the light from the open door of the bungalow, lighting a cigarette. For a moment, he could see the blocky, high-cheeked face now pouched and wrinkled. And then the flame went out, and there was only the red coal glowing in the darkness. He closed his eyes again, and the dream picture came back to him the woman catching the little dog and raising her head as though to speak to him. Plenty of time yet. Pitov was speaking German instead of Spanish, as they always did between themselves. They're still counting down from minus three hours. I just phoned the launching site for a jeep. Eugenio's been there ever since dinner. They say he's running around like a cat looking for a place to have her first litter of kittens. He chuckled. This would be something new for Eugenio Galvez, for which he could be thankful. I hope the generators don't develop any last-second bugs, he said. 
We'll only be a mile and a half away, and that'll be too close to 50 kilos of negamatter if the field collapses. It'll be all right, Pitov assured him. The bugs have all been chased out years ago. Not out of those generators in the rocket. They're new. He fumbled in his coat pocket for his pipe and tobacco. I never thought I'd run another nuclear bomb test as long as I lived. Lee, Pitov was shocked. You mustn't call it that. It isn't that at all. It's purely a scientific experiment. Wasn't that all any of them were? We made lots of experiments like this back before 1969. The memories of all those other tests, each ending in an Everest-high mushroom column, rose in his mind. And the end result, the United States and the Soviet Union blasted to rubble, a whole hemisphere pushed back into the Dark Ages, a quarter of a billion dead including a slim woman with graying blonde hair and a little red dog, and a girl from Odessa whom Alexis Pitov had been going to marry. Forgive me, Alexis. I just couldn't help remembering. I suppose it's this shot we're going to make tonight. It's so much like the other ones before, he hesitated slightly, before the Auburn bomb. There, he'd come out and said it. In all the years they'd worked together at the Instituto Argentino de Ciencia Física that had been unmentioned between them, the families of hanged cutthroats avoid mention of ropes and knives. He thumbed at the old-fashioned American lighter and held it to his pipe. Across the veranda, in the darkness, he knew that Pitov was looking intently at him. You've been thinking about that lately, haven't you? The Russian asked. And then, timidly, was that what you were dreaming of? Oh no, thank heaven! I think about it too, always. I suppose... He seemed relieved, now that it had been brought out into the open and could be discussed. You saw it fall, didn't you? That's right. From about thirty miles away. A little closer than we'll be to this shot tonight. I was in charge of the investigation at Auburn, until we had New York and Washington and Detroit and Mobile and San Francisco to worry about. Then what had happened to Auburn wasn't important anymore. We were trying to get evidence to lay before the United Nations. We kept at it for about twelve hours after the United Nations had ceased to exist. I could never understand about that, Lee. I don't know what the truth is. I probably never shall. But I know that my government did not launch that missile. During the first days after yours began coming in, I talked to people who had been in the Kremlin at the time. One had been in the presence of Klyzenko himself when the news of your bombardment arrived. He said that Klyzenko was absolutely stunned. We always believed that your government decided upon a preventive surprise attack and picked out a town, Auburn, New York, that had been hit by one of our first retaliation missiles and claimed that it had been hit first. He shook his head. Auburn was hit an hour before the first American missile was launched. I know that to be a fact. We could never understand why you launched just that one, and no more until after hours began landing on you, why you threw away the advantage of surprise and priority of attack, because we didn't do it, Lee. The Russian's voice trembled with earnestness. You believe me when I tell you that? Yes, I believe you. After all that happened, and all that you and I and the people you worked with and the people I worked with and your government and mine have been guilty of, it would be a waste of breath for either of us to try to lie to the other about what happened fifteen years ago. He drew slowly on his pipe. But who launched it then? It had to be launched by somebody. 
don't you think I've been tormenting myself with that question for the last 15 years? Pitov demanded. You know, there were people inside the Soviet Union, not many, and they kept themselves well hidden, who were dedicated to the overthrow of the Soviet regime. They, or some of them, might have thought that the devastation of both our countries and the obliteration of civilization in the Northern Hemisphere would be a cheap price to pay for ending the rule of the Communist Party. Could they have built an ICBM with a thermonuclear warhead in secret? He asked. There were also fanatical nationalist groups in Europe, both sides of the Iron Curtain, who might have thought our mutual destruction would be worth the risks involved. There was China and India. If your country and mine wiped each other out, they could go back to the old ways and the old traditions. Or Japan or the Muslim states. In the end, they all went down along with us. But what criminal ever expects to fall? We have too many suspects, and the trail's too cold, Alexis. That rocket wouldn't have had to have been launched anywhere in the Northern Hemisphere. For instance, our friends here in the Argentine have been doing very well by themselves since El Colosso del Norte went down. And there were the Australians, picking themselves up bargains in real estate in the East Indies at gunpoint. And there were the Boers, trekking north again in tanks instead of ox wagons. And Brazil, with a not-too-implausible pretender to the Braganza throne, calling itself the Portuguese Empire and looking eastward. And to complete the picture, here were Professor Dr. Lee Richardson and Comrade Professor Alexis Petrovich Pitov, getting ready to test a missile with a matter-annihilation warhead. No, this thing just wasn't a weapon. A jeep came around the corner, lighting the dark roadway between the bungalows, its radio on and counting down. Twenty-two minutes, twenty-one fifty-nine, fifty-eight, fifty-seven. It came to a stop in front of their bungalow, at exactly minus two hours, twenty-one minutes, fifty-four seconds. The driver called out in Spanish, Dr. Richardson! Dr. Pitov! Are you ready? Yes, ready. We're coming. They both got to their feet, Richardson pulling himself up reluctantly. The older you get, the harder it is to leave a comfortable chair. He settled himself beside his colleague and former enemy, and the jeep started again, rolling between the buildings of the living quarters area and out onto the long straight road across the pampas toward the distant blaze of electric lights. He wondered why he had been thinking so much lately about the Auburn bomb. He'd questioned, at times indignantly, of course, whether Russia had launched it, but it wasn't until tonight, until he had heard what Pitov had had to say, that he seriously doubted it. Pitov wouldn't lie about it, and Pitov would have been in a position to have known the truth if the missile had been launched from Russia. Then he stopped thinking about what was water or blood a long time over the dam. The special policemen at the entrance to the launching site reminded them that they were both smoking. When they extinguished, respectively, their cigarette and pipe, he waved the jeep on and went back to his argument with a carload of tourists who wanted to get a good view of the launching. There now, Lee. Do you need anything else to convince you that this isn't the weapon project? Pitov asked. No, now that you mention it, I don't. You know, I don't believe I've had to show an identity card the whole time I've been here. I don't believe I have an identity card, Pitov said. Think of that. The lights blazed everywhere around them but mostly about the rocket that towered above everything else, so thick that it seemed to squat. The gantry cranes had been hauled away now, and it stood alone, but it was still wreathed in thick electric cables. They were pouring enough current into that thing to light half the streetlights in Buenos Aires. 
When the cables were blown free by separation charges at the blastoff, the generators powered by the rocket engines had better be able to take over, because if the magnetic field collapsed and that 50-kilo chunk of negative proton matter came into contact with natural positive proton matter, an old-fashioned H-bomb would be a firecracker to what would happen. Just 100 kilos of pure, 200-proof MC2. The driver took them around the rocket, dodging assorted trucks and mobile machinery that were being hurried out of the way. The countdown was just beyond two hours, five minutes. The jeep stopped at the edge of a crowd around three more trucks, and Dr. Eugenio Galvez, the director of the Institute, left the crowd and approached at an awkward half-run as they got down. Is everything checked, gentlemen? He wanted to know. It was this afternoon at 1730, Pitoff told him, and nobody's been burning my telephone to report anything different. Are the balloons and the drone planes ready? The Air Force just finished checking. They're ready. Captain Yerquiola flew one of the planes over the course and made a guidance tape that's been duplicated and all the planes are equipped with copies. How's the wind? Richardson asked. Still steady. We won't have any trouble about fallout or with the balloons. Then we'd better go back to the bunker and make sure everybody there is on the job. The loudspeaker was counting down to two hours, one minute. Could you spare a few minutes to talk to the press? Eugenio Galvez asked. And perhaps say a few words for telecast. This last is most important. We can't explain too many times the purpose of this experiment. There is still much hostility arising from fear that we are testing a nuclear weapon. The press and telecast services were well represented. There were close to a hundred correspondents from all over South America, from South Africa and Australia, and even one from Ceylon. They had three trucks with mobile telecast pickups, and when they saw who was approaching, they released the two rocketry experts they had been quizzing and pounced on the new victims. Was there any possibility that negative proton matter might be used as a weapon? Anything can be used as a weapon. You could stab a man to death with that lead pencil you're using, Pitoff replied. But I doubt if negamatter will ever be so used. We're certainly not working on weapons design here. We started six years ago with the ability to produce negative protons, reverse spin neutrons, and positrons, and the theoretical possibility of assembling them into negamatter. We have just gotten the 50 kilogram mass of nega iron assembled. In those six years, we had to invent all our techniques and design all our equipment. If we'd been insane enough to want to build a nuclear weapon after what we went through up north, we could have done so from memory and designed a better, which is to say a worse, one from memory in a few days. Yes, and building a negamatter bomb for military purposes would be like digging a 50-foot shaft to get a rock to bash somebody's head in, when you could do the job better with the shovel you're digging with, Richardson added. The time, money, energy, and work we put in on this thing would be ample to construct 20 thermonuclear bombs, and that's only a small part of it. He went on to tell them about the magnetic bottle inside the rocket's warhead, mentioning how much electric current was needed to keep up the magnetic field that insulated the negamatter from contact with posimatter. Then what was the purpose of this experiment, Dr. Richardson? Oh, we were just trying to find out a few basic facts about natural structure. Long ago, it was realized that the nucleonic particles, protons, neutrons, mesons, and so on, must have structure of their own. Since we started constructing negative proton matter, we found out a few things about nucleonic structure, some rather odd things, including fractions of Planck's constant. 
A couple of the correspondents, a man from La Prensa and an Australian, whistled softly. The others looked blank. Pitov took over. You see, gentlemen, most of what we learned, we learned from putting negamatter atoms together. We annihilated a few of them. Over there in that little concrete building, we have one of the most massive steel vaults in the world where we do that. But we assembled millions of them for every one we annihilated. And that chunk of nega iron inside the magnetic bottle kept growing. And when you have a piece of nega matter you don't want, you can't just throw it out on the scrap pile. We might have rocketed it into escape velocity and let it blow up in space, away from the moon or any of the artificial satellites, but why waste it? So we are going to have the rocket ejected, and when it falls, we can see, by our telemetered instruments, just what happens. Well, won't it be annihilated by contact with atmosphere? Somebody asked. That's one of the things we want to find out, Pitov said. We estimate about 20% loss from contact with atmosphere, but the mass that actually lands on the target area should be about 40 kilos. It should be something of a spectacle coming down. You say you had to assemble it after creating the negative protons and neutrons and the positrons. Doesn't any of this sort of matter exist in nature? The man who asked that knew better himself. He just wanted the answer on the record. Oh no, not on this planet, and probably not in the galaxy. There may be whole galaxies composed of nothing but negamatter. There may even be isolated stars and planetary systems inside our galaxy composed of negamatter, though I think that very improbable. But when negamatter and posamatter come into contact with one another, the result is immediate mutual annihilation. They managed to get away from the press and returned as far as the bunkers, a mile and a half away. Before they went inside, Richardson glanced up at the sky, fixing the location of a few of the more conspicuous stars in his mind. There were almost a hundred men and women inside, each at his or her instruments. Few screens, radar indicators, detection instruments of a dozen kinds. The reporters and telecast people arrived shortly afterward, and Eugenio Galvez took them in tow. While Richardson and Pitov were making their last-minute rounds, the countdown progressed past minus one hour. And at minus twenty minutes, all the overhead lights went off and the small instrument operator's lights came on. Pitov turned on a couple of view screens, one from a pickup on the roof of the bunker and another from the launching pad. They sat down side by side and waited. Richardson got his pipe out and began loading it. The loudspeaker was saying, Minus two minutes, 159, 58, 57. He let his mind drift away from the test, back to the world that had been smashed around his ears in the autumn of 1969. He was doing that so often now, when he should be thinking about two seconds, one second, firing. It was a second later that his eyes focused on the left-hand view screen. Red and yellow flames were gushing out at the bottom of the rocket, and it was beginning to tremble. Then the upper jets, the ones that furnished power for the generators, began firing. He looked anxiously at the meters. The generators were building up power. Finally, when he was sure that the rocket would be blasting off anyhow, the separator charges fired and the heavy cables fell away. An instant later, the big missile started inching upward, gaining speed by the second, first slowly and jerkily, and then more rapidly, until it passed out of the field of the pickup. He watched the rising spout of fire from the other screen until it passed from sight. By that time, Pitov had twisted a dial and gotten another view on the left-hand screen, this time from close to the target. That camera was radar-controlled. 
It had fastened onto the approaching missile, which was still invisible. The stars swung slowly across the screen until Richardson recognized the ones he had spotted at the zenith. In a moment now, the rocket, a hundred miles overhead, would be nosing down, and then the warhead would open, and the magnetic field inside would alter, and the mass of negamatter would be ejected. The stars were blotted out by a sudden glow of light. Even at a hundred miles, there was enough atmospheric density to produce considerable energy release. Pitov, beside him, was muttering, partly in German and partly in Russian. Most of what Richardson caught was figures trying to calculate how much of the mass of unnatural iron would get down for the ground blast. Then the right-hand screen broke into a wriggling orgy of color, and at the same time every scrap of radio-transmitted apparatus either went out or began reporting erratically. The left-hand screen, connected by wiring to the pickup on the roof, was still functioning. For a moment, Richardson wondered what was going on, and then shocked recognition drove that from his mind as he stared at the ever-brightening glare in the sky. It was the Auburn bomb again. He was back in memory to the night on the shore of Lake Ontario, the party breaking up in the early hours of morning. He and Janet and the people with whom they had been spending a vacation week standing on the lawn as the guests were getting into their cars. And then the sudden light in the sky. The cries of surprise and then of alarm as it seemed to be rushing straight down upon them. He and Janet clutching each other and staring up in terror at the falling blaze from which there seemed no escape then relief as it curved away from them and fell to the south, and then the explosion, lighting the whole southern sky. There was a similar explosion in the screen when the mass of nega iron landed, a sheet of pure white light so bright and so quick as to almost pass above the limit of visibility, and then a moment's darkness that was in his stunned eyes more than in the screen, and then the rising glow of updrawn incandescent dust. Before the sound waves had reached them, he had been legging it into the house. The television had been on, and it had been acting as insanely as the screen on his right now. He had called the state police, the telephones had been working all right, and told them who he was, and they had told him to stay put and they'd send a car for him. They did within minutes. Janet and his host and hostess had waited with him on the lawn until it came, and after he had gotten into it, he had turned around and looked back through the rear window and seen Janet standing under the front light, holding the little dog in her arms, flopping one of its silly little paws up and down with her hand to wave goodbye to him. He had seen her and the dog like that every day of his life for the last fifteen years. What kind of radiation are you getting? He could hear Alexis Pitov asking into a phone. What? Nothing else? Oh, yes, of course, but mostly cosmic. That shouldn't last long. He turned from the phone. A devil's own dose of cosmic and some gamma. It was the cosmic radiation that put the radios and telescreens out. That's why I insisted that the drone planes be independent of radio control. They always got cosmic radiation from the micro-annihilations in the test vault. Well, now they had an idea of what produced natural cosmic rays. There must be quite a bit of negamatter and posimatter going into mutual annihilation and the total energy release through the universe. Of course, there were no detectors set up in advance around Auburn, he said. We didn't really begin to find anything out for half an hour. By that time, the cosmic radiation was over, and we weren't getting anything but gamma. What? What has Auburn to do? The Russian stopped short. You think this was the same thing? He gave it a moment's consideration. Lee, you're crazy. There wasn't an atom of artificial negamatter in the world in 1969. 
Nobody had made any before us. We gave each other some scientific surprises then, but nobody surprised both of us. You and I, between us, knew everything that was going on in nuclear physics in the world. And you know as well as I do, a voice came out of the public address speaker. Some of the radio equipment around the target area that wasn't knocked out by blast is beginning to function again. There is an increasingly heavy gamma radiation, but no more cosmic rays. They were all prompt radiation from the annihilation. The gamma is secondary effect. Wait a moment. Captain Yerquiola of the Air Force says that the first drone plane is about to take off. It had been two hours after the blast that the first drones had gone over what had been Auburn, New York. He was trying to remember, as exactly as possible, what had been learned from them. Gamma radiation. A great deal of gamma. But it didn't last long. It had been almost down to a safe level by the time the investigation had been called off, and two months after, there had been no more missiles, and no way of producing more, and no targets to send them against if they'd had them. He had been back at Auburn on his hopeless quest, and there had been almost no trace of radiation. Nothing but a wide, shallow crater, almost 200 feet in diameter, and only 15 at its deepest, already full of water, and a circle of flattened and scattered rubble for a mile and a half all around it. He was willing to bet anything that that was what they'd find where the chunk of nega iron had landed, fifty miles away on the pampas. Well, the first drone ought to be over the target area before long, and at least one of the balloons that had been sent up was reporting its course by radio. The radios and the others were silent, and the recording counters had probably jammed in all of them. There'd be something of interest when the first drone came back. He dragged his mind back to the present, and went to work with Alexis Pitov. They were at it all night, checking, evaluating, making sure that the masses of data that were coming in were being promptly processed for programming the computers. At each of the increasingly frequent coffee breaks, he noticed Pitov looking curiously. He said nothing, however, until long after dawn they stood outside the bunker, waiting for the jeep that would take them back to their bungalow and watching the line of trucks. Argentine army engineers, locally hired laborers, load after load of prefab huts and equipment going down toward the target area, where they would be working for the next week. Lee, were you serious? Pitov asked. I mean, about this being like the one at Auburn. It was exactly like Auburn. Even that blazing light that came rushing down out of the sky. I wondered about that at the time. What kind of a missile would produce an effect like that? Now I know. We just launched one like it. But that's impossible! I told you, between us, we know everything that was happening in nuclear physics then. Nobody in the world knew how to assemble atoms of negamatter and build them into masses. Nobody and nothing on this planet built that mass of negamatter. I doubt if it even came from this galaxy. But we didn't know that then. When that negamatter meteor fell, the only thing anybody could think of was that it had been a Soviet missile. If it had hit around Leningrad or Moscow or Kharkov, who would you have blamed it on?
Last time on Bear Trap, Tom Shandor was beginning to make revelations of his own. This week, the entire picture is revealed with a truth that chills Shandor to his bones. Bear Trap by Alan E. Norse Part 3 The idea had crystallized as he talked to Mariel. Shandor's mind was whirling as he walked down toward the thoroughfare. Incredulously, he tried to piece the picture together. He had known Dartmouth Baring was big, but that big? Mariel might have been talking nonsense, or he might have been reading the gospel. Shandor hailed a cab, sat back in the seat, scratching his head. How big could Dartmouth Baring be? Could any corporation be that big? He thought back remembering the rash of post-war scandals and profit-gouging trials, the antitrust trials. In wartime, bars are let down. No one can look with disfavor on the factories making the weapons. And if one corporation could buy and expand and buy some more, it might be too powerful to be prosecuted after the war. Shandor shook his head, realizing that he was skirting the big issue. Dartmouth Baring connected up in some absurd fashion. But there was a missing link. Mariel fit into one side of the puzzle, interlocking with Dartmouth. The stolen files might even fit, for that matter. But the idea grew stronger. A great, jagged piece in the middle of the puzzle was missing. The key piece which would tie everything together. He felt his skin prickle as he thought. An impossible idea. And yet, he realized, if it were true, everything else would fall clearly into place. He sat bolt upright. It had to be true. He leaned forward and gave the cabbie the landing field address, then sat back, feeling his pulse pounding through his arms and legs. Nervously, he switched on the radio. The dial fell to some jazz music, which he tolerated for a moment or two, then flipped to a news broadcast. Not that news broadcasts really meant much, but he wanted to hear the Ingersoll story release for the day. He listened impatiently to a roundup of local news. David Ingersoll, stricken with pneumonia, Three senators protesting the current tax bill. He brought his attention around sharply at the sound of a familiar name. Disappeared from his Chicago home early this morning. Mr. Dartmouth is president of Dartmouth Bearing Corporation, currently engaged in the manufacture of munitions for defense and producing much of the machinery being used in the moon rocket in Arizona. Police are following all possible leads and are confident there has been no foul play. On the international scene, the Kremlin is still blocking... Shandor snapped off the radio abruptly his forehead damp. Dartmouth disappeared, and with him the files. Why? And where to go now to find them? If the idea that was plaguing him was true, sound, valid, he'd have to have the files. His whole body was wet with perspiration as he reached the landing field. The trip to the Library of Congress seemed endless, yet he knew that the library wouldn't be open till eight o'clock anyway. Suddenly he felt a wave of extreme weariness sweep over him, when had he last slept? Bored, he snapped the telephone switch and rang PIB offices for his mail. To his surprise, John Hart took the wire and exploded in his ear. Where the hell have you been? I've been trying to get you all night. Listen, Tom, drop the Ingersoll story cold and get in here. The faster, the better. Shandor blinked. Drop the story? You're crazy. Get in here, roared Hart, 
From now on, you've really got a job. The Berlin Conference blew up tonight, Tom. High as a kite. We're at war with Russia. Carefully, Shandor plopped the receiver down on its hook, his hands like ice. Just one item first, he thought. Just one thing I've got to know. Then back to PIB, maybe. He found a booth in the library and began hunting, time pressing him into frantic speed. The idea was incredible, but it had to be true. He searched the microfilm files for three hours before he found it, in a who's who dating back to 1958, three years before the war with China. A simple, innocuous listing, which froze him to his seat. He read it unbelievingly, yet knowing that it was the only possible link. Finally, he read it again. David P. Ingersoll, born 1922, married 1947, educated at Rutgers University and MIT, worked as administrator for International Harvester until 1955, taught Harvard University from 1955 to 1957, David P. Ingersoll becoming, in 1958, the executive president of Dartmouth Bearing Corporation. He found a small wooded glade not far from the library and set the copter down skillfully, his mind numbed, fighting to see through the haze to the core of the incredible truth he had uncovered. The great, jagged piece, so long missing, was suddenly plopped right down into the middle of the puzzle, and now it didn't fit. There were still holes, holes that obscured the picture and twisted it into a nightmarish impossibility. He snapped the telephone switch, tried three numbers without any success, and finally reached the fourth. He heard Dr. Prex's sharp voice on the wire. Anything happened since I left, Prex? Nothing remarkable. The doctor's voice sounded tired. Somebody tried to call Mariel on the visiphone about an hour after you had gone, and then signed off in a hurry when he saw somebody else around. Don't know who it was, but he sounded mighty agitated. The doctor's voice paused. Anything new, Tom? Plenty, growled Shandor bitterly, but you'll have to read it in the newspapers. He flipped off the connection before Prex could reply. Then Shandor sank back and slept, the sleep of total exhaustion, hoping that a rest would make the shimmering, indefinite picture hold still long enough for him to study it. And as he drifted into troubled sleep, a greater and more pressing question wormed upward into his mind. He woke with a jolt, just as the sun was going down, and he knew then with perfect clarity what he had to do. He checked quickly to see that he had been undisturbed and then manipulated the controls of the copter. Easing the ship into the sky toward Washington, he searched out a news report on the radio, listened with a dull feeling in the pit of his stomach as the story came through about the breakdown of the Berlin Conference, the declaration of war, the president's meeting with Congress that morning, his formal request for full wartime power, the granting of permission by a wide-eyed, frightened legislature. Shandor settled back, staring dully at the ground moving below him, the wisps of evening haze rising over the darkening land. There was only one thing to do. He had to have Ingersoll's files. He knew only one way to get them. Half an hour later, he was settling the ship down under cover of darkness on the vast grounds behind the Ingersoll estate, cutting the motors to effect a quiet landing. Tramping down the ravine toward the huge house, he saw it was dark. Down by the gate, he could see the security guard standing in a haze of blue cigarette smoke under the dim-out lights. Cautiously, he slipped across the back terrace, crossing behind the house, and jangled a bell on a side porch. Anne Ingersoll opened the door and gasped as Shandor forced his way in. Keep quiet, he hissed, slipping the door shut behind him. And he sighed, 
and walked through the entrance into the large front room. Tom! Oh, Tom, I was afraid! Oh, Tom! Suddenly she was in his arms, sobbing, pressing her face against his shirt front. Oh, I'm so glad to see you, Tom! He disengaged her, turning from her and walking across the room. Let's turn it off, Anne, he said disgustedly. It's not very impressive. Tom, I... I wanted to tell you. I just didn't know what to do. I didn't believe them when they said you wouldn't be harmed. I was afraid. Oh, Tom, I wanted to tell you. Believe me. You didn't tell me, he snapped. They were nervous. They slipped up. That's the only reason I'm alive. They planned to kill me. She stared at him tearfully, shaking her head from side to side, searching for words. I... I didn't want that. He whirled, his eyes blazing. You silly fool, what do you think you're doing when you play games with a mob like this? Do you think they're going to play fair? You're no clod, you know better than that. He leaned over her, trembling with anger. You set me up for a sucker, but the plan fell through. And now I'm running around loose, and if you thought I was dangerous before, you haven't seen anything like how dangerous I am now. You're going to tell me some things now, and you're going to tell them straight. You're going to tell me where Harry Dartmouth went with those files, where they are right now. Understand that? I want those files, because when I have them, I'm going to do exactly what I started out to do. I'm going to write a story. The whole rotten story about your precious father and his two-faced life. I'm going to write about Dartmouth Bearing Corporation and all its flunky outfits and tell what they've done to this country and the people of this country. He paused, breathing heavily, and sank down on a chair, staring at her. I've learned things in the past 24 hours I never dreamed could be true. I should be able to believe anything, I suppose, but these things knocked my stilts out from under me. This country has been had, right straight down the line for a dozen years. We've been sold down the river, and now we're going to get a look at the cold, ugly truth for once. She stared at him. What do you mean? about my precious father. Your precious father was at the bottom of the whole slimy mess. No, no, not dad. She shook her head, her face chalky. Harry Dartmouth, maybe, but not dad. Listen a minute, I didn't set you up for anything. I didn't know what Dartmouth and Mariel were up to. Dad left instructions for me to contact Harry Dartmouth immediately in case he died. He told me that, oh, a year ago told me that before I did anything else, I should contact Dartmouth and do as he said. So when he died, I contacted Harry and kept in contact with him. He told me you were out to burn my father, to heap garbage on him after he was dead before the people who loved him. And he said the first thing you would want would be his personal files. Tom, I didn't know you then. I knew Harry and knew that Dad trusted him for some reason, so I believed him. But I began to realize that what he said wasn't true. I got the files, and he said to give them to you, to string you along, and he'd pick them up from you before you had a chance to do any harm with them. He said he wouldn't hurt you, but I... I didn't believe him, Tom. I believed you, that you wanted to give Dad a fair shake. Shandor was on his feet, his eyes blazing. So you turned them over to Dartmouth anyway? And what do you think he's done with them? Can you tell me that? Where has he gone? Has he burnt them? If not, what's he going to do with them? Her voice was weak, and she looked as if she were about to faint. That's what I'm trying to tell you, she said shakily. He doesn't have them. I have them. 
Shandor's jaw dropped. Now wait a minute, he said softly. You gave me the briefcase. Mariel snatched it and nearly killed me. A dummy tongue. I didn't know who to trust, but I knew I believed you more than I believed Harry. Things happened so fast, and I was so confused. She looked straight at him. I gave you a dummy, Tom. His knees walked out from under him then, and he sank into a chair. You've got them here, then, he said weakly. Yes, I have them here. The room was in the back of the house, a small crowded study with a green-shaded desk lamp. Shandor dumped the contents of the briefcase onto the desk and settled down, his heart pounding in his throat. He started at the top of the pile, sifting, ripping out huge sheafs of papers, receipts, notes, journals, clippings. He hardly noticed when the girl slipped out of the room, and he was deep in study when she returned half an hour later with steaming black coffee. With a grunt of thanks, he drank it, never shifting his attention from the scatter of papers. Papers from the personal file of a dead man. And slowly, the picture unfolded. An ugly picture. A picture of deceit. A picture full of lies, full of secret promises. A picture of scheming, of plotting, planning, influencing, coercing, cheating, propagandizing. All with one single-minded aim, with a single terrible goal. Shandor read numbly, his mind twisting in protest as the picture unfolded. David Ingersoll's control of Dartmouth Bearing Corporation and its growing horde of subsidiaries under the figurehead of his protege, Harry Dartmouth. The huge profits from the Chinese War. The relaxation of control laws. The millions of War I dollars plowed back into government bonds in a thousand different names, all controlled by Dartmouth Bearing Corporation. And Ingersoll's own work in the diplomatic field, an incredibly skillful, incredibly evil channeling of power and pressure toward the inevitable goal, hidden under the cloak of peaceful respectability and popular support. The careful treaties, quietly disorganizing a dozen national economics, antagonizing the great nation to the east under the all-too-acceptable guise of peace through strength. Reciprocal trade agreements, bitterly antagonistic to Russian economic development. The continual bickering, the skillful manipulation hidden under the powerful propaganda cloak of a hundred publications, all coursing to one ultimate, terrible goal, all with one purpose, one aim. War. War with anybody. War in the field and war on the diplomatic front. Traces even remained of the work done within the enemy nations. Bitter anti-Ingersoll propaganda from within the ranks of Russia herself, manipulated to strengthen Ingersoll in America, to build him up, to drive the nations farther apart, while presenting Ingersoll as the pathetic prince of world peace, fighting desperately to stop the ponderous wheels of the irresistible juggernaut. And in America... The constant, unremitting literary and editorial drumbeating, pressuring greater war preparation, distilling hatreds in a thousand circles, focusing them into a single channel. Tremendous propaganda pressure to build armies, to build weapons, to get the moon rocket project underway. Shandor sat back, eyes drooping, fighting to keep his eyes open. His mind was numb, his body trembling. A sheaf of papers in a separate folder caught his eye. Production records of the Dartmouth Bearing Corporation, almost up to the date of Ingersoll's death. Shandor frowned, a snag in the chain drawing his attention. He peered at the papers, vaguely puzzled. Invoices from the Chicago plant, materials for tanks and guns and shells, steel, chemicals, 
The same for the New Jersey plant. The same with a dozen subsidiary plants. Shipments of magnesium and silver wire to the rocket project in Arizona carried through several subsidiary offices. The construction of a huge calculator for the project in Arizona. Motors and materials, all for Arizona. Something caught his mind, brought a frown to his large, bland face, some off-key note in the monstrous symphony of production and intrigue that threw up a red flag in his mind, screamed for attention. And then he sipped the fresh coffee at his elbow and sighed, and looked up at the girl standing there, saw her hand tremble as she steadied herself against the desk and sat down beside him. He felt a great confusion suddenly, a vast sympathy for this girl, and he wanted to take her in his arms, hold her close, protect her somehow. She didn't know, she couldn't know about this horrible thing. She couldn't have been a party to it, a part of it. He knew the evidence said yes, she knows the whole story, she helped them, but he also knew that the evidence somehow was wrong, that somehow he still didn't have the whole picture. She looked at him, her voice trembling. You're wrong, Tom, she said. He shook his head helplessly. I'm sorry. It's horrible, I know, but I'm not wrong. This war was planned. We've been puppets on strings, and one man engineered it from the very start. Your father. Her eyes were filled with tears, and she shook her head, running a tired hand across her forehead. You didn't know him, Tom. If you did, you'd know how wrong you are. He was a great man, fine man, but above all, he was a good man. Only a monster could have done what you're thinking. Dad hated war. He fought it all his life. He couldn't be the monster you think. Tom's voice was soft in the darkened room, his eyes catching the downcast face of the trembling girl, fighting to believe in a phantom, and his hatred for the power that could trample a faith like that suddenly swelled up in bitter, hopeless rage. It's here, on paper. It can't be denied. It's hateful, but it's here. It's what I set out to learn. It's not a lie this time, Anne. It's the truth. And this time, it's got to be told. I've written my last false story. This one is going to the people the way it is. This one is going to be the truth. He stopped, staring at her. The puzzling, twisted hole in the puzzle was suddenly there, staring him in the face, falling down into place in his mind with blazing clarity. Staring, he dived into the pile of papers again, searching, frantically searching for the missing piece, something he had seen and passed over, the one single piece in the story that didn't make sense. And he found it, on the lists of materials shipped to the Nevada plant. Pig iron, raw magnesium, raw copper, steel, electron tubes, plastics, from all parts of the country, all being shipped to the Dartmouth plant in Nevada where they made only shells. At first, he thought it was only a rumble in his mind, the shocking realization storming through. Then he saw Anne jump up suddenly, white-faced, and race to the window, and he heard the small scream in her throat. And then the rumbling grew louder, stronger, and the house trembled. He heard the whine of jet planes scream over the house as he joined her at the window, heard the screaming whines mingled with the rumbling thunder. And far away, on the horizon, the red glare was glowing, rising, burning up to a roaring conflagration in the black night sky. Washington! Her voice was small, infinitely frightened. Yes, that's Washington. Then it really has started. 
She turned to him with eyes wide with horror and snuggled up to his chest like a frightened child. Oh, Tom. It's here, what we've been waiting for. What your father started could never be stopped any other way than this. The roar was louder now, rising to a whining scream as another squad of dark ships roared overhead, moving east and south, jets whistling in the night. This is what your father wanted. She was crying, great sobs shaking her shoulders. You're wrong. You're wrong. Oh, Tom, you must be wrong. His voice was low, almost inaudible in the thundering roar of the bombardment. And I've got to go ahead. I've got to go tonight, to Nevada, to the Dartmouth plant there. I know I'm right, but I have to go, to check something, to make sure of something. He paused, looking down at her. I'll be back, Anne, but I'm afraid of what I'll find out there. I need you behind me, especially with what I have to do. I need you. You've got to decide. Are you for me or against me? She shook her head sadly and sank into a chair, gently removing his hands from her waist. I loved my father, Tom, she said in a beaten voice. I can't help what he's done. I loved him. I... I can't be with you, Tom. Far below him, he could see the cars jamming the roads leaving Washington. He could almost hear the noise, the screeching of brakes, the fistfights, the shouts, the blatting of horns. He moved south over open country, hoping to avoid the places where the copter might be spotted and stopped for questioning. He knew that Hart would have an alarm out for him by now, and he didn't dare risk being stopped until he reached his destination, the place where the last piece to the puzzle could be found, the answer to the question that was burning through his mind. Shells were made of steel and chemicals. The tools that made them were also made of steel. Not manganese, not copper, not electron relays, nor plastic, nor liquid oxygen, just steel. The copter relayed south and then turned west over Kentucky. Shandor checked the auxiliary tanks which he had filled at the library landing field that morning. Then he turned the ship to robot controls and sank back in the seat to rest. His whole body clamored for sleep, but he knew he dare not sleep. Any slip, any contact with army aircraft or security patrol could throw everything into the fire. For hours he sat, gazing hypnotically at the black expanse of land below, flying high over the pitch-black countryside. Not a light showed, not a sign of life. Bored, he flipped the radio button, located a news broadcast. The bombed area did not extend west of the Appalachians. Washington, D.C. was badly hit, as were New York and Philadelphia, and further raids are expected to originate from Siberia, coming across the Great Circle to the West Coast or the Middle West. So far, the enemy appears to have lived up to its agreement in the Ingersoll Pact to outlaw use of atomic bombs, for no atomic weapons have been used so far, but the damage with blockbusters has been heavy. All citizens are urged to maintain strictest blackout regulations and to report as called upon in local work and civil defense pools as they are set up. The attack began. Shandor sighed, checked his instrument readings. Far in the east, the horizon was beginning to lighten, a healthy white-gray light. His calculations placed him over eastern Nebraska, and a few moments later he nosed down cautiously and verified his location. Lincoln Air Base was in a flurry of activity. The field was alive with men, like little black ants, preparing the reserve fighters and pursuits for use in the fever of urgent speed. Suddenly, the copter radio bleeped, and Tom threw the switch. Over, an angry voice snarled. You up there, whoever you are, where'd you leave your brains? 
No civilian craft are allowed in the air, and that's orders straight from Washington. Don't you know there's a war on? Now get down here before you're shot down, Shandor thought quickly. This is a federal security ship, he snapped. I'm just on a reconnaissance, the voice was cautious. Security? What's your corroboration number? Shandor cursed. JF223R864. Name is Jerry Chandler. Give it a check if you want to. He flipped the switch and accelerated for the ridge of hills that marked the Colorado border as the radio signal continued to bleep angrily and a trio of pursuit planes on the ground began warming up. Shandor sighed, hoping they would check before they sent ships after him. It might at least delay them until he reached his destination. Another hour carried him to the heart of the Rockies and across the great salt fields of Utah. His fuel tanks were low, being emptied one by one as the tiny ship sped through the bright morning sky, and Tom was growing uneasy, until suddenly, far to the west and slightly to the north, he spotted the plant, nestling in the mountain foothills. It lay far below, sprawling like some sort of giant spider across the rugged terrain. Several hundred cars spread out to the south of the plant, and he could see others speeding in from the temporary village across the ridge. Everything was quiet, orderly. He could see the shipments, crated, sitting in freight cars to the north. And then he saw the drill line running over to the right of the plant. He followed it, quickly checking a topographical map in the cockpit, and his heart started pounding. The railroad branch ran between two low peaks and curved out toward the desert. Moving over it, he saw the curve, saw it as it cut off to the left, and seemed to stop dead in the middle of the desert sand. Shandor circled even lower, keeping one ear cocked on the radio, and settled the ship on the railroad line. And just as he cut the motors, he heard the shrill whine of three pursuit ships screaming in from the eastern horizon. He was out of the copter almost as soon as it had touched, throwing a jacket over his arm, and racing for the place where the drill line ended. Because he had seen, as he slid in for a landing, just what he had suspected from the topographical map. The drill didn't end in the middle of a desert at all. It went right on into the mountainside. The excavation was quite large, the entrance covered and camouflaged neatly to give the very impression that he had gotten from the air. Under the camouflage, the space was crowded, stacked with crates, boxes, materials, stacked all along the walls of the tunnel. He followed the rails in, lighting his way with a small pocket flashlight when the tunnel turned a corner, cutting off the daylight. Suddenly, the tunnel widened, opening out into a much wider room. He sensed, rather than saw, the immense size of the vault, smelt the odd, bitter odor in the air. With the flashlight, he probed the darkness, spotting the high, vaulted ceiling above him. And below him. At first he couldn't see, probing the vast excavation before him. And then, strangely, he saw but couldn't realize what he saw. He stared for a solid minute, uncomprehending. Then, stifling a gasp, he knew what he was looking at. Lights. He had to have lights, to see clearly what he couldn't believe. Frantically, he spun the flashlight, seeking a light panel, and then, fascinated, he turned the little oval of light back to the pit. And then he heard the barest whisper of sound, the faintest intake of breath, and he ducked, frozen, as a blow whistled past his ear. A second blow from the side caught him solidly in the blackness, grunting, flailing out into a tangle of legs and arms, cursing, catching a foot in his face, striking up into soft, yielding flesh and his head suddenly exploded into a million dazzling lights as he sank unconscious to the ground.
Next week is the surprising conclusion to Bear Trap, a Lovecraftian history lesson, and Avon joins us again with an adorable story celebrating the month of May. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider checking out the Patreon if you'd like to support us. If you're finding this on Patreon or on Audible or somewhere else you can leave a rating or review, please do so. Or leave a comment and let us know how we're doing. And by us, I mean me. Patrons get early access, downloadable files to listen to offline, behind-the-scenes shenanigans, a Discord server for said shenanigans, and a bonus story each month not aired on the podcast. You can find the Mayor Zine at www.patreon.com slash mayorzine. And a very special thanks to my patrons for helping to fund the Mayor Zine. Dan Adler, Tammy Bulkeo, Richard, Miriam Rubin, and David Shore. You guys are awesome. All the fiction featured in this program is in the public domain. All the music is licensed royalty-free from storyblocks.com. This production is copyright 2022 by Christopher James Mayer. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next week.